This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and we have a unique podcast. We actually, I think we would call this a panel. There is Doug DePep, and we have Hillary Wells, Ed Barkell, and Bill Nelson. Doug is with EOS Edge, and Hillary, Ed, and Bill are with Lewis, Roca, Roth, Gerber, and Christy, which is much better than I did before the show on pronouncing all of that. And so what we're going to talk about today is cybersecurity. So if you would, tell us about your business and who you serve. So we're a full-service firm, and we will talk a little bit later about how we've formed a strategic alliance with EOS Edge. And we represent companies everywhere from banking to insurance companies to investment advisors, healthcare, schools, and manufacturing, everything in between. And what we found is that all of our clients have access to data. That data needs to be secured. And so we've developed this group to work with our clients and help them, especially the small to medium-sized clients, develop systems, processes, and methodology so that they can help keep their company data safe and maybe even more importantly, their clients' data safe. You know, in, in thinking about as a small business owner, right, and you kind of go 10, 15 years ago, I didn't even need to think about this. I talked to a couple of groups here recently and their age was similar to mine. And most of them don't use LinkedIn. Most of them don't look at their email. And so what I would think is the awareness of the smaller business owner is not that high. Why did you form what you formed? What was the motivating factor? Really what we did is we followed our clients and their path through data protection and cyber issues. Data protection, as far as a large industry that first encountered it, was the healthcare industry with the passage of HIPAA. And health, we, as Ed said, we represent a lot of insurance companies, we represent hospital systems, and we saw that group be the first to really try to tackle what information they were collecting, what they were doing to store it, and then their obligations to protect it. The financial services industry was next. We had Gramm-Leach-Bliley and other uh, regulations from FINRA come out. And those industries were finding, golly, our regulators are now requiring us to have these plans and these systems and these policies. How do we do this and how do we stay compliant? In the past five years, what we've seen is we've gone from regulated entities who are doing what they had to do because they were told to do so, to a really interesting standard that's developed for all industries across the spectrum, regardless of whether or not a regulator is directing what you do and how you do it, finding that customers are making buying decisions in part based on how are you doing in this field? If I'm going to trust you with my information, how do I know that you're doing what you can to protect it? And that's not a Facebook problem. It's not a Twitter problem. Businesses of all sizes have employee information, they have customer information, they have information to be protected. And so what we've done is we've transitioned from just advising on what the law is, which can be daunting, to bringing to the table for our small and mid-sized clients an opportunity for them to assess what their particular risk is and how they can try to mitigate those risks. You know, for the small business owner, did they walk into this or were they drug into this? I would say both. Uh, you know, we think about the hacks that happen like at some of the retailers or at a hotel chain or some of the others, not typically what I would think of as a small business owner. And you kind of go, I was just there buying a pair of socks and all of a sudden my data is out in the breeze. So for you guys, are you predominantly front range? What's the extent of your coverage with your firm? We have a Southwestern footprint. We have offices in Colorado. Our home office is in Arizona and we office in Nevada and California as well. 
And California's kind of jumped feet first into the data protection and privacy issues with a recently enacted law. So we see lots of development as far as standards. Again, what do you have to do? While at the same time, we see clients trying to do the right thing and to understand what their risks are. You mentioned something interesting, you know, how does this come up in these large breaches where I purchase some socks? I think Doug can speak to the type of encounters that small businesses have with ransomware and other forms of mischief that create real problems if you're trying to get access not only to your customer information, but say, for example, to your AR system so you can get your bills out and get paid. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Hillary. There's a notion out there that I'm not being targeted, that it's someone else's problem, or my business is just not likely to be attacked. And what we're seeing on the dark web or the dark net is that there's hacking for sale as a service. You know, So there's a whole black market where hackers are selling their services to others. And some of these organizations have massive capability to uh, break into search engines, for example, and to attack whole countries based upon IP ranges. And so it's a dragnet. And it's not about, hey, they're not really going to look at me. It's not remaining under the radar, so to speak. You could just be swept into a dragnet attack just because you have a, a vulnerability that someone's looking for. We're sneaking back to the small business owner, right? And so I'm the business owner and go, well, you know, yeah, I changed my password sort of regularly, got uh, Comcast or another provider for my internet security, and I have a router and stuff. And I try to back up my data periodically to one of the backup services. So, well, am I really still exposed? What would you say to that business owner that says, well, I think I kind of got this covered? So being secure on the internet is just frankly not possible. It just keeps changing, right? So you can be up with compliance and what the current best practices are, and there's something called a zero-day exploit, all right? zero-day exploit means that someone's figured out that there's an exploitation of a vulnerability that no one knows about yet, and they develop a hacking methodology to exploit that. That's called an exploit. So it's not possible to be secure, which is not saying, hey, it's a losing battle, The name of the game now is being resilient. So being able to withstand attacks, detect incidents and anomalies, and being able to recover quickly. You know, in the military, we used to call it tallest man in the foxhole. (laughs) If you have zero protection and zero things done, I would think that you would be an easier target than somebody that's done something. Yeah, great point, Bob. So the game is not about, it's trying to be, as that joke goes, faster than the next guy when the bear's out there, right? is you don't want to be the low-hanging fruit. So we're going to talk more about cyber hygiene, but if you have a baseline level of security and you're resilient, then you're going to run a little faster than the next guy. And we didn't mention it, you know, Doug's with EOS Edge. And, you know, we've been talking about the law, right? And and everybody here is an attorney except me. Boy, am I outnumbered. <laughs> I can't even talk that much, but... Maybe, maybe you're the smart one. <laughs> you know, in thinking about that, you guys don't just do the law, though. You also do practical help and remedies for the business owner and suggestions to help them understand what they can do and what their risk might be. Yeah, it's uh, one of the value adds that we're trying to bring is, is not only tell the client what the new law in Colorado is, what the new law in California is, but to take themselves from being low-hanging fruit and move forward. Some of that's just education as to what the potential risks are, what steps they can take to protect their data. And we'll talk a little bit more detail 
later about what they can do with their employees to help their employees help them build that firewall against an outside attack. Because frequently, it's not a hard attack that gets a company. It's mistakes by the employees who let the hacker in. And we'll talk about how that happens. But this education and value add is really part of our goal. And we'll talk also about cyber insurance and what steps you need to take to put that policy in place and have it stay in place and have coverage. And we'll talk about what those costs are. But it's really to help the client, the small business owner, understand that they do have assets to protect and they do have a reputation to protect. And that, as Hillary said earlier, there's buying decisions happening now that are based upon safe company versus unsafe company. And we want our clients to be able to be the safe company so that they've protected their data, they have good cyber hygiene, and we've given them that value add. In the transition world for businesses, there's also that discussion about intellectual property and how to protect. And so we talk about outside actors. There's also the inside actor that can take and go. And so when you guys are looking at companies that you touched on it some that are coming to marketplace and looking at policies, procedures, intellectual property protection, what are you seeing from the buyer standpoint? Are they starting to focus more and more on that? They are. We're seeing that as part of due diligence in mergers and acquisitions, financial audits have always been kind of the standard for what we need to have in place, get through, have the professional's opinion on before we close the deal. What we're finding now is there's also a need for a cyber audit. Because as you take on somebody else's infrastructure and their employees and their systems, you very well may, as you know, a large hotel chain did, buy into somebody else's cyber problem, not realizing that you've done so. And so there is a lot of places that this piece of work becomes important from a business perspective. It's not a matter of, am I going to get sued? Is there something bad that's going to happen? It's what do I do to protect and add value to my business and make sure that I'm appropriately valuing what I'm considering either acquiring or selling, as you said. No, it's just good business. It is. And having come out of some of the, uh, the M&A work in my early days, one of the things we always looked at was, oh, well, I can do an asset purchase or I can do a stock purchase. If I do a stock purchase, I buy all the problems. But today in the cyber world, buying the assets doesn't necessarily insulate you. And in fact, you may be buying into that hotel chain problem. And so having that search done, having the review done, looking at the policies and procedures that company had, going through an EOS Edge review to see what their cyber gaps are is important. And we think that going forward, even the smaller businesses, whether it's baby boomers looking to transition out of their business, need to have done the housekeeping to set things up so that they can sell the business for the greatest value. Well, I think about holdbacks. If you've got it taken care of, then maybe your holdback's less. And if you don't have it taken care of, maybe the holdback's more. So shifting gears a bit. So Hillary, we were talking beforehand. What really pushed you guys to go through this data protection and cybersecurity side? As I said, it really did develop from representing groups in highly regulated industries that were coming to grips with what are our legal requirements. And then as we saw the requirements in the new Colorado law that applies to all businesses, concerning the need to protect client information to make sure that it's disposed of appropriately when it's no longer needed, we really just had an opportunity to stand back and say, okay, if I were the business owner, has Louis Rocco Rothker or Christie actually answered my problem? And what we found is we were able to and did very well give the legal advice around what you need to do in order to be in compliance. 
But the business owner is looking at it and saying, okay, but what's my problem? You've told me that this is a problem, but how is it in my business a problem? And what can I do to improve it? Which is the reason we reached out to Doug DePep and his group, who've got the real technical expertise and background and consultants who can evaluate what is your risk given the business you're in. If you're a tow truck company, you've still got risk. It may not be the same as the risk of a bank that's got intellectual property that it's protecting for itself or others. And so with his ability to assess what the risk is and what can be done to improve, we found we became a full service partner for our clients because we weren't just reporting on a problem that they read about every day. And this is what you can do in order to manage the problem you can't solve, but you can certainly mitigate. Solutions. So Doug, for you, how did you get down this cyber road? You know, I'm retired military and this is the way that we practice law in the military. And it occurred to me that you do a lot of work and sessions with new businesses, ventures, opportunities. So one of the maxims, right, if you're going to start a new business is, what's my differentiation? What's my value proposition? There's a phrase called having an unfair advantage, which is a good thing if you're opening up a new business, right? So I looked at that and felt that the best cyber firm was a cyber law firm. And the reason for that is there's certain advantages. First of all, lawyers have to do what's in the best interest of their clients. We're ethically bound to do that. So we're not hawking a service or a product or looking at a line card for our partners to fit that into a particular opportunity. We're assessing and solving the client's problems. So that's one feature. The other feature is that, especially in cybersecurity, businesses are trying to figure out where to start, what's enough spend, what's enough security. And those are delicate conversations. And so being able to have that conversation and provide expert advice in a confidential setting is something that other cyber vendors can't do. So we bring all that and we do it from prevention all the way through incident response. That's why I got into this space. What Hillary was talking about is this tool we developed, which is CyberGaps, and Ed mentioned it as well. And it's an assessment methodology that is quantitative. In other words, um, we've been talking a lot about risk. And so how do you measure risk? How do you know when something is enough? So we identify the gaps, we score them, and the score is based upon something like efficacy data, big word there, but it's based upon data that's out there in the marketplace that shows what's effective. And so then we've scored controls so that when we go into a company and we do an assessment, we can tell them exactly what they need to do to get to a targeted score based upon math. And so then that's defensible. Their decisions on what they're going to do and whether enough is enough, they can back that up based upon data. So I'm the business owner and I go, not only do I have a gap, I'm clueless. And I know I need to do something that's this year's resolution and you guys come in. So what should I expect when you walk through the door? How long are you typically in my company? And walk me through that so I would know what to expect. Sure. I'll start by the end. We want at the end of the assessment to give you assurance and defensibility that your roadmap going forward is logical and defensible, right? So then how do we get there? We start out by looking at the organizational profile. In other words, there's an inherent risk based upon the business you're in, certain of your practices, and we develop an inherent risk score. And that provides us their target. So are they basically high, medium, low? What kind of risk are they in? So what would be a high industry and what would be a low industry? It's factor-based, right? I can't just give you. So our intellectual property. 
Do you have a lot of intellectual property? Are you engaged in a lot of financial transactions? These are all the sort of the elements that create risk. And then there are just certain sectors there was a, that are high propensity for being attacked. As the saying goes, 1920s, 1930s, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. That's Willie's son. <laughs> right. And so those kind of factors is, you know, you would target for those reasons. And then once we profile the organization, we do a full assessment. It's a holistic, people call it 360 or holistic. It doesn't look exclusively at the network. It looks at their sales practices, their HR practices. Do they have committees that oversee or not? And as a result of that, once we're done, we give the report that spells out, here's your current score. We're going to put you on a maturity model. These are some phrases in the industry, but we're going to put you on a maturity model, meaning here's your roadmap forward. Implement, for example, let's say that the, the results of the assessment and the scoring reveals that you're it's based upon a 1.0 index. So let's say you're 0.65 and you need to get to 0.70. And a two-factor authentication is worth 0.06. Do the math. You just hit your 0.70, right? So now your decisions are defensible. You've engaged in a logical assessment to arrive at this roadmap. For the business that's looking at it, we have to do cyber insurance one way or another. And so they come through and use your gap tool and they go, so do the insurance companies recognize the ranking and for cost reduction or whatever? The insurance companies, when they are doing what's called their underwriting of the policy, they're asking a lot of questions around what are your networks? What are your practices? What are your procedures? How many records do you have? And we find that sometimes we're asked to get involved because of an insurance application. The smaller mid-sized business owner doesn't really know the answers to these questions. They may be cloud-based. They may be using other services. And so what they're finding is their insurance brokers are coming to them and saying, this is a risk you have that is probably not covered under your regular liability insurance. You need a different policy. And when they're going through the process of trying to get that policy, they're learning. We don't know very much or maybe as much as we would like to know about our system. And so the type of assessment that Doug is talking about really drills into what is out there, how at risk are you, and what can you do to manage forward. And any insurance company is going to look more favorably on an applicant who is proactively looking at their risk profile and managing it, rather than an applicant who may not know what their risk profile is and candidly might not be able to answer correctly the questions in the cyber application. And so circling back to where Doug was talking about reasonableness and defensibility, This practice grew out of a heavily regulated industry, two of them, who were told exactly what to do and really how to do it. And now that we're talking about reasonable security measures, there's no universal definition for that. It's going to be defined for each company by their size, by their industry, and by their risk. And we know that small and mid-sized businesses can't just use the Wells Fargo data protection system. It's They don't have the resources for it. But when you go through an assessment like the one that EOS Edge Legal offers through CyberGaps, you have an opportunity to decide how to deploy those financial and human resources in ways that are going to yield better value than simply just throwing money at the problem. And so we really do view this as a tool to help clients get to a place where they not only understand their risk, they have a path forward, and they haven't been told this is an insurmountable problem that you can't afford to manage. It's the old 80-20, get started, do this taken at least minimum product done from there. 
and we hear this migration to the cloud, right? So, well, I don't have it on my server anymore. I have it on Amazon or whoever you have it on. And even today, we heard of a major, or is it yesterday, a social media provider, they found a bunch of identifiable information on a server. And so for the business that's doing application-based or doing cloud-based business, talk about what you guys are doing to address that issue. So cyber gaps, like I said, is holistic. I mean, it matters in the analysis because we're looking at a different environment, but the process is the same. There's still the fundamentals. There's still blocking and tackling. For example, you have an outsource relationship, a cloud relationship. Who's got responsibility for what? Who's observing compliance? Who's responsibility for compliance? So they're still looking at the, uh, the subscriber agreement or the service level agreement, the transactional elements to make sure that you understand who's managing risk. And risk doesn't just shift to the cloud. Ed was talking about earlier, employees are a real source of risk in this field. And it's not because they're all malicious. It's because they click on emails that have attachments and the cloud won't protect you from the employee who gets the urgent email from the CEO that says, I need you to run out and purchase gift cards right away and bring, you know, and send me the numbers. It doesn't help. It's the employee is the problem and that problem can only be managed through training. And so again, when you go through an assessment, you start to better understand what level of access do employees have? Are we segregating the information the employees have access to according to what each employee needs? And are we providing the training so that the employee understands that this is not an IT problem? This is not a problem that resides with the people who know everything about the computers. This is a system-wide defense system, and every employee needs to participate in it. There are so many devices, right? So to Hillary's point, printers uh, and and they're all attack vectors. That's not a term in the trade, but uh, they get in, people get in that way. But what I was going to get at is here in front of me is my phone, right? That's a device. So individuals download, unless you're operating on a netbook, right, which has no, opera, has no um, content, essentially. It's all your contents in the cloud. People download. And so there's personal identifiable information or other sensitive information on devices all over the place. Sounds daunting. You look at this and as a business owner, and I've had an attack on my information from a crypto blocker. So I'm maybe more sensitive than those that haven't been hacked yet. So when you guys did this alliance, so law side over here, practical side over here, is that a way to characterize it properly for the strategic alliance that you guys put together? I think that's roughly correct. I would say with Doug in particular, he's a bridge between the law and the technical side. And so when we delegate a client project or responsibility, his team comes in and does the technical assessment, but he, Doug, definitely participates in the analysis of, are you compliant with whatever your duties may be? And if those duties happen to be to be reasonable, like Doug was explaining, being able to show that objectively and through a math-based model, a client is pursuing a path toward better protection, that's going to be the best defense, not just if, if there were a lawsuit later, because I really don't think this is about lawsuits. This is about keeping your customers, keeping your clients, and keeping your employees. And so what you want to be able to do is say, look, there's no preventing this problem. I think most people accept that proposition now. But if you can go back and say, but what I tried to do was take these steps. And I did those things that I was told through a math-based model should be those that are best steps for me to take. And I deployed the resources in that manner. It becomes harder to just be critical because you happen to be the target of an attack. So if I'm in the C-suite or I'm on a board and I've got to report to shareholders, and you think about cybersecurity, and we talked about this a bit. So 
How should they frame this discussion? What should they be doing? Or the questions they should be asking either of the people that report to the board or the people that report to the C-suite? What should they be doing? It is somewhat of a, a mind shift. And as Hillary said, it's really not something that they should focus on as a litigation risk. Because as we know, most business owners are focused on how are we running the business today? How are we satisfying our customers' needs? And how are we going to do a better job of increasing our customer base and servicing our customers going forward? And we're really moving into a realm of reputational risk. And if we aren't doing the things that our competitors are doing, our competitors will be taking our business sooner than later because we're going to have a data breach and a reputational risk and harm that comes from that. I mean, we know retailers that have had problems, not necessarily their own, and in some instances, their vendors who they didn't properly vet caused the problem for them. So again, this holistic approach of looking at the company, take a look and see, and we've been using some military terms, what are the attack vectors? What's our surface of attack? Each mobile device is a surface of attack. An entry point. Yeah. Each employee is an entry point. And so management needs to take a look at it and say, okay, we are going to delegate. And it doesn't have to be a large company, the single business owner, right? They should designate at least one person who's in charge of what are we doing and what are we doing to cover our, you know, lessen the attack vector. And with either a committee or that individual, you start to take a look at where are we? What's the low hanging fruit in our company? And through the CyberGaps tool, you can see on the dashboard, if we do additional training, it does reduce the risk that our company has that our employees are going to click on malicious malware that's going to download through a PDF, or they're going to send out money because they didn't recognize that. An email came in that wasn't actually from the president of the company. It was from an email that looked very much like the president's email, but they didn't look at it closely enough, and they just sent out $1,000 worth of Amazon gift cards. So those are all kinds of things that we're looking at. And so I think overall, management needs to see what they can do to lessen their risk. And then I think it's also important for management to understand what some of the costs are associated with a breach. And there's a report called the Ponymon Report. And the, the what report? Ponymon. And I thought it was Pokemon. I was going, it's what? pretty close. But, uh, <laughs> and some people might think it's the same thing. But this entity has done a global research on the cost associated with a data breach. And again, this brings in larger companies, but the average data breach cost is about $3.86 million. And that includes your reputational harm, loss of customers, cost to get customers back, the fix that is required inside. If you have a ransomware attack and it shuts down all your servers, you may have to replace all the servers. And you've got a loss of business in the 10 days, two weeks, whatever it takes to restart the business. You have to have IT spend to rebuild your network, get your laptops back on. You've got product that's in transit. You don't know where it is. Your customers want to know where it is. You have data that's gone. All of these things impact it. And they've also gone down and taken a look at, and this is one that Hillary and Bill and I ran into, there was, and this would be near dear to your heart, a financial advisor that had essentially 20 years worth of client data, including dead clients, old clients, gone clients, and had a breach. So what did they have to do? They had to send out notices to all of the clients who had a breach. Well, reputational harm, some of them were dead and their children are like, why did I get this? Is my dad's information really out there? Things like that. 
And for a malicious attack, the cost per record is around $207 per record. So if you're not managing your data properly, for the current client base you have, let's say you have 3,000 clients, rather than 20 years worth of clients, which is 20,000 clients, you just increased your cost tenfold. And we talked about the human error, employees clicking on things causing problems. That's about $170 per record. And then an error in your system is about $160. So if you've got bad software, bad coverage, things like that. So there are these costs that I think management can take a look at and say, okay, here's a reason why we ought to be doing these things to at least increase our protection. You were talking, I was thinking about as an insurance company trying to come through and price insurance to a particular business. And, you know, you've got 5,000 customers or you've got 20,000 customers. And I'm thinking about that would be a unique business proposition to try to figure out. And then if they price it on a per head basis, how in the world could anybody afford it in a small business world? Mm -hmm. So thinking about that, Hillary, we were going to talk about reputational harm. Yes. And I saw in one of our notes here, I'm thinking about Equifax. For goodness sakes, how in the world? You know, that's kind of their business. <laughs> One would think. Yeah. And you kind of go, well, let's see. What did they say? It's basically there was enough records breached that it was pretty much everybody in the United States. That's my understanding. So what do you think? There's a couple of different levels in there. You know, Equifax obviously survived because they compete in a world where there's a few other large credit reporting companies. And they had the resources to deploy in order to manage that breach as best they could. But all of the statistics and studies show that when you don't have unlimited assets and you are in a competitive environment, a breach is something that can cause what's called churn, as Ed was explaining, the loss of customers who simply choose to go somewhere else because their reaction to something that happened inside your networks couldn't, you know, wasn't resolved and you're not able to adequately explain. And so what the studies show is that those businesses who affirmatively look at what information do I have? How am I storing it? Am I getting rid of it appropriately as far as both timing and the manner of disposition? They're in a better, well call headspace to deal with a breach because again, they can go back and explain, we did what we could and here's the steps we affirmatively took. But going back to how does all of this work into a small to mid-sized business environment? We want to take away the piece you spoke about, that it's so daunting, we just ignore it. We want to make sure it's something that is identified as a risk. Instead of just reporting, you've got issues, you've got obligations, and good luck figuring out those issues and obligations. Really, the cyber gaps assessment allows the small business to go through and do that real holistic look at what are our data protection issues? How many individuals' records do we have? If I'm running an apartment complex that's been around for 50 years, do I have rental applications with social security numbers from 1986? Maybe I can lower my risk by making sure that we're not keeping those records either paper or electronically because they're no longer reasonably necessary. And so it really does give you a focused period of time where Sedge comes in and does interviews in order to help you inventory where you are and what you can do. And then you walk away with a plan towards doing better. And I think really once you take away the daunting nature of this problem and look at it as businesses look at every other risk management issue that they deal with, it becomes so much more manageable. And we can talk about it on all sorts of fronts. 
But the beginning of the analysis is where are you now and what can you do affirmatively, including assessing the risk and perhaps ensuring it. And there's just a lot of ways to manage this very daunting task that can make it not only less daunting, but something that becomes a value add for you as the business, your clients, and your employees just by having gone through a process and meaningfully addressed and considered the problem. If I can add just one comment to the Equifax piece from, you know, another angle on it is that it just demonstrates that it, being compromised, being breached can happen to anyone. And now, granted, and I say that because they're presumably highly secure, they're in the security business in some respects, and yet they got hacked. And they're not the only one. There's a lot of organizations in the security business that have been hacked, mm-hmm. right? You could argue that they were targeted. Okay, fair enough. So let me, without naming another incident, but describing it just out, I think in the last 24, 48 hours, there's an app marketplace, like the apps that we download on our phones. And um, the app marketplace had malware apps for sale that were available. The point being, what employee might have downloaded or might in the future download an app? And so it is ubiquitous. The risk is ubiquitous, but the key point there is that it's risk. And all risk can be addressed if leadership, which Ed was talking about, leadership's involved, and you put certain practices, procedures, governance in place. So I'm the business owner that just got hacked and going like, my first call is typically to either my wife or IT, one of the two. <laughs> going like, you cannot believe this. Call IT. All right. Then once you get IT involved and you go, never again. So what would you guys recommend? IT is always called, but either the cyber law practitioner should be called before that or coincident to that. Because this is now a best practice. Every insurance that offers cyber insurance, every one of them, their practice is to deploy a law firm first. All right. And the reason for that is because, and who's ultimately the payer, right? The insurance carrier. So if they look at this risk and said, we need to employ a law firm, that tells you something. They're looking to reduce litigation risk down the road if it becomes a data breach and there's litigation. And having the attorney-client privilege involved or the work product privilege is an important component of how you respond to an incident. I don't think that's known. I I don't think anybody's talking about that. Well, the insurance industry is for sure. and, And we are definitely in that space. But I'll take it one step further, which is before you've had the incident, and this is something that we do with cyber gaps assessment and preparing companies, is you ought to have an incident response plan. So calling the fire alarm and having the team show up and first have to find the place, trying to figure out what water systems, where electricity is, that's not the time to figure that out, right? Have this stuff in place beforehand so that if you do have an incident, the triage team goes in quickly, hopefully can reduce it, can stop it, stop the harm, as we say, stop the bleeding, and handle things professionally quickly. Well, now we're going to segue into my, I think it's going to be my favorite part of this. Your favorite buzzword, (laughs) cyber hygiene. (laughs) I I just love saying this. Cyber hygiene, we're on it. Isn't it great? I'm telling you. So, cyber hygiene. So, it, it is. It's a buzzword. And it's a great word to get everybody to understand that you have your daily hygiene in life. And that helps keep you healthy. And the cyber hygiene is what's going to help your company stay healthy. And There's a couple of groups that have done studies. One is the Center for Internet Security, and the other is the Council on Cybersecurity. And 
They've found that by putting good cyber practices in place, which is training your employees and things like that, can reduce the risk of an attack or a breach, not necessarily an attack, but a breach and a loss by 85 to 90 percent. And it's going to those employees. And as Doug was mentioning earlier, you take a look at what's connected to your system. So one of the first steps is to assess the inventory of devices that can access your system. How many printers do we have that are Wi-Fi? I mean, do they have a password? What are the portals that we have in our network? And are they secured behind a firewall? What are our passwords? Inventory of the passwords. Do we have password 12345 as many people's router comes to them? You know, Admin's always a good one. <laughs> admin, admin's the username. You've got it, right? Admin, then the password is 12345. And how many people just leave that open? whether it's at home or their business. So once you've done that inventory of your devices, then, as I said, you need to assess the access. The next step is developing awareness with your employees, not just your IT employees, but everybody in the company as to what the risks are to the company and to the clients and the reputational harm. And the next piece, and Doug touched on this as well, is preparedness. Do you have an incident response plan in place? And then another way to address it is to have what they call a tabletop exercise, where you sit down with your key people and you say, okay, assume we had a breach today. What's the first step? What are we going to do? Which, before we go further than that, and if the guys are going, I give up, I'm at risk, I need to call you guys, how do they find you guys? What should they do? Well, you can uh, Google any one of our names. Okay. Take a look at Lewis Roker Rothgerber. Our website is www.lrrc.com. And we have a page for our cyber group. We have all of our contact information on that page. You can contact Hillary, you can contact me, you can contact Bill and Doug's information there as well. So we're available at any time, more than happy to talk to people. And we can talk them through some of these steps. You know, here's what you need to start to think about. And one easy tip for anyone is if they are going to put a plan in place, print it out. Simple, practical idea. Because if you have your incident response plan on the computer and it gets hit by ransomware and you can't access your computer, what are you going to do? I'm the business owner. So I already got an attorney. Why would I want to call you guys? A couple comments. First of all, in cyber, this is not talking about lawyers. This is just broadly about cyber. It's so hot right now that if anyone in the industry has been in the military, been in Homeland Security, been in IT, been in other kinds of security, they now have cyber in their title, right? It's taken 10 years of practice in the military and elsewhere to really understand what the cyber risk is. I like to call it cyber risk because it's a translation of incidents and, and intelligence into meaningful advice to a client, translated into legal terms or business risk terms. So that's, um, I think, increasingly with the nature of the attacks, getting sophisticated, this hybrid, sometimes state actor, sometimes organized almost routinely now organized crime of understanding that ecosystem, that attack ecosystem, having relationships with um, law enforcement as well as government and just connections throughout the industry. I think those are uh, features that, that we bring to the table. I was being a bit of a devil's advocate there. <laughs> as you, the thing I think about is, you know, there's, there's this push toward IoT, the Internet of Things. Yeah. You go, we were talking about before, you got a smart refrigerator to go like, yeah, you're eating too much. Sure. And I've got the smart Alexa or whatever it is, or the hot dot in your house, and every other thing in your house is supposed to be connected 
how do you guys see that in, with your approach to business? When is it going to take and start to migrate to the homes as well? Like Ed was saying, it's an attack vector now. I, you know, the good news is probably, and I guess if they get into the router, that would change the equation. But we're not typically talking about personal identifiable information or data privacy. That certainly could happen. It's more of involving devices into botnets. Botnets are networks that are used to take other companies off the internet, using them as part of a network and having the bandwidth. You know, we have so many near-term problems. There's internet of things, trade groups and the government, smart energy, smart this, smart that. It's not that we're not interested in that, but there's only so much that we can uh, focus on. It's low-hanging fruit. Where's the biggest risk first? Right. And it's right now data privacy. Data privacy, there is a trend globally about protecting data privacy. And that's what we're primarily interested in. And for me, I'm an old Intel guy too. But I think about just the electrical grid and the challenges within the electrical grid and pretty much any infrastructure item. I don't know where they're at, but I suspect they're ahead of many of the smaller businesses just on that. In looking at it, so what advice are we getting as an industry or you guys from the three-letter agencies? In this case, we'll use the FBI. So the FBI, they are tracking cyber theft and they're tracking one of the big areas that applies to probably almost any person that's going to listen to this podcast is the theft of money over the internet. And whether it's through something that they've downloaded or for any homeowner. So one of the hottest areas right now is stealing the closing proceeds for home closings. Sounds crazy, right? So they're not hacking into Wells Fargo. What they're doing is they're going to the real estate firm, the appraisal firm, the closing title agent, the closing office. They're all sending emails back and forth about what the closing date is. They're all sending emails that may include a closing checklist that includes the name of the bank and the bank number, the account number, and the routing number where the money's going to go. And so the hacker can sit inside the email system and watch for a closing to happen. And what do they do next? As I mentioned earlier, they spoof an email address. So it looks like it's coming from Ed Barkle at LR Law. So for the spoof an email address. Yeah. So, you know, let's say it's my name, Bob Rourke, and they're going to spoof an email. Do they just like add an, a letter or something else to just make it look the same? Sure. And, and so for my name, last letter of my name is an L, right? They could use uh, a capital L or a small L, or if, if you had an I in your name, change it to an L. Looks the same. Capital I looks like an L. Run that right through, and it looks like the right email. I mean, we did have an incident with a client. We were lucky to capture it. They changed the email address from our firm name. They put a hyphen in between the person's first and last name instead of a dot, right? So by doing that, it looked like the email address. They came in and said, send the money to this new bank. We're having a problem with our old bank account. And luckily, somebody picked up the phone along the way and said, why would they be changing bank accounts at this late date? I mean, everybody's known this closing was going to happen. And they saved it. So what's happening with the closing transactions is you're ready to close, everything happens, and then somebody looks at their account and says, where'd the closing proceeds go? So it's something that can happen to everybody. And the tips from the FBI are when you have a transaction, have what they call an out-of-band authentication process. So if you and I are going to transmit money tomorrow, I don't send you all of the closing information. When I send the account number, I might call you on the phone and say, here's the account number 
read it back to me. That's where the money's going to go. And we'll do confirmation in a separate way. Maybe you have a password that you've exchanged ahead of time offline. And so when it goes through, you've got that keyword built into the email so the other person knows this is authentic. And then also there's a, a methodology of sending secure, correct? Yeah. So encryption, there are different services available where you can upload a document through a secure server and it comes out the other side encrypted. You mentioned uh, one of your other podcast folks have encryption devices where you can do that encryption. So those are all steps that you can use. Another way is, so let's say you get that closing memo, time to reply. Instead of hitting the reply to all button, because that you could now reply to the spoofed email, go ahead and just start typing in the email addresses that come up from your email data bank, right? You're going to get the right email and it won't be the one that's got the capital L for an I and things like that. The FBI also recommends using what they call two-factor identification. So you may have seen it with some of the Google accounts and things like that. If, if you want to do X, we're going to send you an authentication code via your cell phone. If you have accounts where you can enable that, do that. That's a key step in avoiding problems. Training employees to delete spam. If an employee sees something that looks like it's fake, report it to your IT people. Just yesterday, my wife and I both received a text message that said, message from your bank, your account is now frozen, click on this link. And I immediately sent her a message, don't do it. If it's from a bank, it would be an HTTPS for secure, and it was not. And then I looked at the end of the string. Say that for the folks out there. go, there's a small... Small tip. Five-star tip, you know. (laughs) Right. So your bank is going to use secure servers and websites. And those websites, after the HTTP, before the colon slashes, there'll be an S. If it doesn't have an S, it's an unsecured website. And then at the very end of the string, it wasn't .com. It was .cl. So I looked that up. It's Chile. Why would my local bank be having me contact somebody in Chile, right? Obviously fake. So luckily she didn't click on it. I didn't click on it. We're good. And then with the employee training, you know, not opening links. You know, one small thing that some companies have their IT department do is when an email comes in, have a banner added that says it's an external email. And you'll see from a lot of financial institutions, they do this. And so it becomes more obvious to an employee that this is a fake email because the president would not be sending an email from his company address that shows up as external. So now I have a red flag, right? So training employees on that, don't click on links. There's other simple ways. It may look like it's our firm website might be the link. If you hover your mouse over that link, you'll actually see what the underlying address is. So those hyperlinks, you'll see all the information. If it looks goofy, again, don't click on it. And so really what the FBI is saying is pay close attention, train your employees to watch out for these kinds of red flags that are out there. Do you see much risk to the cell phone world on hacking right now? I think you know most companies or a lot of companies have bring your own device policies where you're allowed to use your phone in order to access servers. And that's, as Doug said, yet another attack vector. But I will say a benefit that comes with that is many companies also require that you have pretty strong passwords on the device. And so the device itself is not as at risk as it would be if it were given to a teenage girl who forgot to put a password on it. And so I think cell phones are still a vector. There is still a serious vector. But to Ed's point, 
a real benefit to them is the ability to do two-factor authentication. I mean, when you get the email back that says, before you can proceed into your account, you're going to have to enter the six-digit code that's just been sent to you. That's only possible if the person who has made the request for the information has got both the access to your account and your physical phone. And so it really does reduce risk by taking the authentication process away from a hacker who's able to get whatever information he or she is able to divine from the inside of an email system or a network to also require that the entity who's accepting the information verify that there is a physical presence. There's a phone that's been associated with me personally, won't let me go forward without that code. And so it's inconvenient. I think Doug would say that a challenge in this space is that anytime you are adding more security, it's no longer as easy. One of the things we see is, you know, passwords reused, or my favorite, having your password be the same for every single account you've ever had. And while that's convenient, I won't forget it. It was real easy once you get my password, then to get into every account I have and to mimic me if you would like to. So for the business owner, sounds like I can offset risk to the extent that I can. What other tools? Is there cyber insurance? What should they be thinking about? The first thing I think is just for, as Ed said, for businesses to pay attention and take ownership of the problem. There was a report out a few months back that indicated that U.S. executives saw cybersecurity as you know one of the top three, I think, risks, but labeled as external risks. And then when they were asked the same question or similar question about their concern about protecting data privacy, they put it down around 14 at the end of the list. And what I read into that is um, if they didn't embrace it as their own problem. They saw it as an external thing that someone else, the state actor, so it must be the government's problem, or I'm not in this space, I'm not being targeted, which we talked about earlier. So I think the key thing is for leadership management to be engaged. I want to just use that management be engaged topic heading to talk about a couple of things that Hillary and Ed mentioned in this context. One of the things that management can do is create a culture of security. And by that, I mean, so we're talking about cell phones. We pick up the phone and I have a phone in my hand and it's like, this is my personal phone. So I trust it. It's still a computing device, right? And so there's data that comes across it and we just can't, because we trust the device or we like the device or it's my device, that shouldn't translate into, I trust everything that happens with it, right? So we have to remove some of the trust. Another example is look at the internet as like a high crime neighborhood because it is. And so if you had a business in a high crime neighborhood, you wouldn't be advertising in the windows what you have inside. And um, At least not more than once. <laughs> <laughs> and so these are ways that we train employees to create a culture of security, as Hillary mentioned also, except that to be more secure, it may be less efficient. That's just a trade-off. But if you want to protect data privacy, if you want to ride along with the trend and improve your business prospects, have a better reputation, reduce risk, these are things that business leaders need to do. Now, on a more practical side, we mentioned already the uh, incident response plan. That's important, Whether depending upon the size of the business, whether it's a management committee that meets regularly and addresses cybersecurity or just putting someone in charge. Like who's responsible and empower that person and give them budget? These are some things at a management level that are important. You also asked about insurance. I think Hillary's going to talk a little bit about that. Insurance is you know, just a piece of a risk management profile. It's a backup system. If something goes wrong, then you have hopefully insurance in place at an adequate level 
that's going to reduce the financial harm of an attack. But the information and the risk that it creates is a, it exists through the life cycle of the information. So you need to look at risk management from an intake perspective, from a perspective of what's happening to the information while it's here. And like I said, make conscious decisions about when is it appropriate to dispose of the information and how do we dispose of it appropriately. If you manage those three front-end risks, then you hope you don't get to the insurance. But the insurance should not be your risk management plan. That plan means something's already gone wrong. And you've really got to look at this life cycle and manage the risk. And then I do believe insurance is an important component of it. And as I said, for a lot of businesses we're talking to now, they're finding that their insurance brokers have identified this risk and are suggesting cyber insurance. And it's the cyber insurance application process. That's really educating them about the need to understand this life cycle of information. Well, I think about the business owner and they go, all right, I want to look at your risk. You know, I haven't done anything. So that's going to cost you more, you know, and go, I've done a lot. I go, that's going to cost you less. And so I think from the business owner's perspective, like everything else, you're going to, I'm going to manage the the expense of doing that. And insurance is financial protection, right? We talked a lot about, and I want to get, make sure that we leave this. A real risk, and we think probably a more significant risk for many businesses, is the reputational harm. And the insurance piece isn't going to solve for that problem. You know, as we go through all of this, and admittedly, we've covered a lot of waterfront. So for the business owner out there that's going like, feels a little bit hosed down, maybe, they should reach out. So I would say that the biggest risk that they have is not reaching out to you guys to at least have a conversation. And... Once that conversation goes on, then I think they move to the next step of whether they're going to engage or mitigate and so on. So we've talked about a lot. Is there a topic that I failed to ask that we really should be talking about within this space? Well, I'll circle back on two things that you mentioned before. One is differentiation. So should they just go to the local attorney down the street who did their trust and maybe key man insurance plan or something like that? they're probably not going to have the background and the information available to actually really give them information that they need or help them build that plan. And what we bring to the table is Hillary's got over 20 years of experience in the insurance arena. Hillary's very familiar with many of the cyber policies that are out there, or at least the key elements of them. And one thing that's a little bit daunting from that side as well is figuring out, does your policy actually cover the things you need? And none of the policies today are exactly the same. There aren't, it's not like a term insurance policy where all the terms and conditions have been hammered out over the last 50 years, right? Each company has a little bit different set of terms and, and other things like that. I had a client that thought they had cyber insurance. Well, what it turned out was each of the two owners had $15,000 worth of coverage if it was their own personal information that had been stolen, but it only applied to one of the two. So whoever was first to report would get the $15,000 of coverage. So they had no idea that what they bought was far worse than, or far less, I should say, than if they had just gone to LifeLock or Costco and bought a policy for themselves, it would add a million dollars worth of coverage for the same price. So we can look at the insurance policy. I mean, one of the issues is, is it a straight cyber policy that you need to cover? Do you need some coverage in your DNO policy for your officers and director? Do you need property and casualty coverage? So if your servers get locked up by ransomware and they're toast, do you buy those out of your own pocket or do you have coverage for that? Errors in emission, if you were negligent in maintaining it, would it be covered there? Maybe not, depending on your profession. So we've got all of those things. Bill and I have been in the financial services industry and we've been dealing with 
Graham Leach Bliley and Regulation SP and consumer data protection. And the states are branching out and covering much more of that information. And we can also advise as to whether you need to report what may be look like a data breach. You may or may not have to report it to a state regulator. So there's a lot of those different things that kind of come into play. And we think we're positioned to help our clients out, large or small. And I think the smaller folks are the ones that, as you, we've been talking about all day, really don't know what they don't know. It's that unknown unknown that we can help them figure out. I think as you know, for the folks that are listening and we, we talk at time and people go, well, why do you have these guests on the show? You know, it's the unseen risk. And back to your comment. And so the, at a minimum, I think the cyber gap side says you may not know where you're at, figure out where you're at. Then take a look and go, what's the risk? What's the next steps? Reach out to you guys and get that part taken care of. And for the business owner goes, geez, that's just one more expense and go, well, no. I think you know, if you look at a value gap and you're getting ready to sell your business and you go, you've got nothing done. And you go, that's really a challenge. And so I think it helps the business owner increase the value of their company. So it's just good business. So I can't tell you how much I appreciate you guys coming in and talking about this issue. And I really honestly don't know what it's going to take for it to become more widely adopted, understood, and considered for the business owner, but we're certainly going to be doing our part to try to get the word out. And we would say, please visit our website, www.lrrc.com. You'll see a, an example of the CyberGaps tool, and we can also make arrangements for a demo. I know it's one thing to listen and hear the words about what mm-hmm. it is, but understanding what the product is and the outcome, I think, is very helpful. We'll have that link on, on, the, on the episode, so we'll have that there. I would just add, you know, do something, like take the next step. We've talked about it. We're available, some good tools, a lot of know-how, and uh, we're looking to help solve some problems. Yeah, put it on the to-do list, move it up. Absolutely. I think the last thing that I would add is the human element is the biggest variable that any company has. And many studies have shown that just saying what your policy is, isn't enough. You need to do testing and get your employees involved. So we can help put together a, an email test program where you send out fake email and then you can track which employees are your risk quadrants because they're clicking on everything and potentially downloading all kinds of harmful stuff. You know, I, I don't know sometimes if the employees attach the meaning between profit in the company and job security. <laughs> That's an excellent point. And you think about the profit of the company and you go, we're really at risk to you surfing around on the internet and downloading weird stuff and finding that you have a $4 million policy coming in from somebody in South Africa you didn't know. All of those things. And at the end of the day, if you blow the company up, your job's gone. And so I really think that there's a, most employees don't understand what part profit has to do with job security and benefits and vacation and healthcare. Especially in small business, there's stats out there to show that after a data breach, a small business that more than half go under. It's, that's a grim number. I think about, so you're the small business owner and 80% of your net worth is tied up in your business. You have a data breach, you have a cybersecurity problem. It's almost an irrecoverable error. And then you go, I'm going to work till I die. Yeah. Big challenge. If you still have a place to work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Guys, thanks so much. I really thanks appreciate so it. Thank you very much. You.